Lord God, we first do just think about this uh, virus that continues to affect people. And Lord, your word tells us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And so we think about those who are mourning as a result of this. And, and Lord, it, it brings us to just a, a bigger point, which is just that this world is, is broken. And it's full of heartache and tragedy. And God, we, we pray for those who are suffering under heartache and tragedy, that you would comfort them. And that this wouldn't be a vague comfort, but that they, they would know that it's Christ Jesus who offers comfort. That you would use heartache and tragedy to bring people to an awareness of your grace and love and redemption through Christ. And Lord, uh, we pray for this time that we have together in your word, that you would use it to challenge us and stretch us, that you would use it to make us more faithful in our love for you and obedience to your word. And Lord, just humble us like that song we sung says, would you humble us, that we wouldn't stand in opposition to you, but that we would be under your authority that we would live according to your word, that we would put our trust and faith in you and not the things in this world or the things that men typically rely on. And Lord, would you give us grace to just love you more and to hear your word and to be faithful to it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to read just verses 18 and 19 of 1 John chapter 2. John writes this, Children, it is the last hour And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John says this is the last hour. And it's important we understand that John does not mean that chronologically, or we wouldn't be reading this letter, right? He writes the letter, it was written by hand, it was then carried by somebody by hand to be delivered, it wasn't an email, and by the time the letter would have been delivered, days would have passed, let alone hours. So if John is literally talking about a 60-minute period of time, then we wouldn't be reading this. Instead, John is telling his beloved children that they already live in the last age of human history as we know it. How long this final age goes on for, we don't exactly know. Scripture does not reveal that to us. It's been 2,000 years roughly since this was written. It may go on for another 2,000 years or more. But we know for certain from John's writings and from other books in the New Testament that the end of all things has already begun. And it began with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Those were the series of events that sparked the beginning of the end. And so we are in the last days. We are in the final age. Now the final moments of the final age have not begun yet. They are somewhere in the future, 
But even if those moments have not yet arrived, the last days have been set in motion, and we are living in those last days. This is common New Testament language. It's found in places like 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20, Hebrews 1, 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And the big theological name for this is eschatology. Okay, I like to drop little bits of theology in teaching from time to time so that you become aware of these things. Eschatology. This is from the Greek word eschatos or eschaton, which means last or final. And it's where we get our Christian word eschatology from. Eschatology is just the study of last things, uh, the end times. And that tends to be a topic that people in churches uh, enjoy learning about because it's bizarre. But what seems pretty clear from the New Testament teaching, particularly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is that before the return of Jesus, there's going to be an intense rebellion against God. Those passage, or that passage in 2 Thessalonians says that a man of lawlessness will arise on earth. And many people who profess to be Christians will end up following this man of lawlessness. They will be deceived into rebellion against God. John calls this man of lawlessness the Antichrist. And he says that this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, is coming at some point. Lots of speculation through history has gone into wondering who that Antichrist is, who that man of lawlessness is. In the early days of the church, many people thought that it was one of the emperors of Rome, particularly Domitian, who persecuted the church. Much later, during the Roman, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the Reformation with Martin Luther, uh, many people thought it was the Pope in the 1500s and the 1600s. More recently, people have claimed it was Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. And I don't presume to know. I don't think we gain much by guessing who this person may be. Instead, I want to focus on the part of what John writes here that really pertains to our life and the ongoing struggle that we have in the church. John asserts to his beloved children that many antichrists have already come. Now this is, I think, somewhat frightening language. Because I think we all tend to think about the Antichrist as this horrible person who will eventually persecute the church, and that's true. But what this does is expand the definition of Antichrist beyond the scope of a single person. It speaks to a consistent issue within the church that we'll deal with until Christ comes back. In other words, yes, there is a person in history who will be the Antichrist, We don't know who that person is or when they will rise up against God. But by telling us that many antichrists have already come, John is warning us that antichrist can also be a description, not merely a person. John is warning his beloved children against any number of ideologies and teachings that take root in the world that are opposed to Christ as Lord, opposed to his reign and rule. And worse than that, if you look closely, you see that John is suggesting 
that these ideologies, these teachings have also taken root in the church among the people of God. These are antichrists who oppose God and yet have been present in the church. And if you remember back to the very beginning of our study through 1 John, uh, I've said from time to time that one of the things that John is doing in this letter is speaking against false teachers who've snuck into the church to deceive people and lead them astray. And I want you to understand these are all antichrists. That's what John is asserting. And they bring with them teachings and ideologies that are deceptive and destructive to the church. Ideologies opposed to Jesus. And they may sound initially good and winsome. They may even have some biblical merit to begin with. But upon further inspection, we come to see that these teachings are fundamentally opposed to Jesus Christ and what he spoke on behalf of God. Look over just a couple chapters in 1 John to chapter 4. Scroll there or flip there. It should just be a page. Verse 3. John helps us here when he writes in chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So John wants us to understand that, again, while one day in the future a singular person will arise who is the Antichrist and they will bring ruin to the world, already the world is full of a spirit of idolatry, deceptive ideologies, false teachers, a general spirit of evil that is fiercely opposed to Jesus and the word of God and the people of Christ who belong to him. And and I think John would want us to understand that the Antichrist is not only a person, it is a way of thinking and believing and living that is fundamentally opposed to Christ Jesus. Paul speaks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to flip there as well. Flip backwards in your Bible. If you hit Thessalonians, you've gone too far. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Or I'm sorry, I said 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy. I think this is a picture that Paul gives of this kind of ideology. Read with me in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. There's that phrase, last days. That's now. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, 
burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here's another picture of the spirit of Antichrist, which John tells us is already in the world. It has the appearance of godliness, Paul writes, deceiving many, looking persuasive and winsome, but it denies the power of God in Christ Jesus, and it's opposed to the truth. People like this are disqualified regarding the faith. And so let me just be clear and say, there's one Jesus, there's one gospel, there's one Lord, there's one scripture that reveals him to us. There's one way by grace through faith in which we can be reconciled to God, and that is through Christ alone. And we come to understand this through the exclusive teaching of the Bible, God's Word. Thus, the people who proclaim and follow these false teachings and live lives by defi- or defined by this kind of evil fruit which we just read from 2 Timothy, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. These teachers are anti-Christ. Now turn back to 1 John chapter 2. I won't promise to you that's the last time I make you flip around today. Let me point out that John is telling his audience that these people were present in the church. They were infecting the church with their false gospel. They had left by the time John had written the letter, that is true. But John knows that this spirit of evil that is opposed to Christ is fiercely committed to its cause. It does not quit easy. The evil one who is behind this work is committed to his labor to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God. And this is a major part of why John writes, to warn Christians that there are many counterfeit versions of the gospel, that they might not fall into error by coming to believe one of them. In 3 John chapter 4, John writes that he has, 3 John verse 4, John writes that he has no greater joy than that his children would walk in the truth. That's his desire for his friends. He wants them to know the difference between the true gospel and the deceptive teaching of these people who are actually opposed to Jesus and the wisdom of the scriptures that God has given us to guide us in truth. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to understand. This is not an ancient problem. This is a modern and ongoing problem for us as Christians. And we've been warned by the Apostle John. Now, here comes the hard part where I intend to get very specific. At risk of offending and angering people in this room and maybe people tuned in on the live stream, I want to just very clearly name and take a stand against two of the most prominent anti-Christ teachings that are infecting the church today. And there are more than these two. 
We could talk about the deception of moralism that infects churches, or openness theology, or theistic evolution, or liberal theology that denies the inerrancy of Scripture. We could talk about those, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to stick to two. And I'm not going to be as thorough as I would like to be. So if I do offend you and I raise questions in your minds or hurt your feelings, please reach out to me so that we can talk more thoroughly about this. I would love an opportunity to further explain myself. But I'm just going to give you this warning that I want to point out who I think many of the wolves are and the way they lace their lies with winsome words. Like John says in verse 19, in time it's going to become abundantly clear that these people were not of us because they will depart from us. But in the meantime, I want you to be prepared to be on guard against their deceptions, their ideologies that are anti-Christ. So the first anti-Christ message masquerading as real Christian truth while it deceptively leads people straight to hell is the prosperity gospel. The false teachers associated with this anti-Christ movement are names that you're going to recognize. Joel Osteen, Paula White, Bill Johnson, Joyce Meyer. Locally, there's a woman named Patricia King who has a building just up the street from us here. And I would say she too is a peddler of this narcissistic theology. And these people are anti-Christ's masquerading under the banner of Christianity, preaching a false gospel that denies the suffering of Jesus Christ and God's will to refine people through trials and difficulties and hardships. The gospel they preach is that your faith activates God, who then is obligated to respond to your faith by pouring out his earthly blessings and removing you from difficulties. The prosperity gospel, I would say, is the ideology of Satan, and I want to present it to you, or present to you three reasons why. First, it takes the focus off of God and his faithfulness to his people and places the focus on us people and our faith in God. And as vital as our faith in God is as Christians, our faith does not in any way determine the power of God or force him into some kind of response to us. Israel always lacked faith. Go read the Old Testament. They are a faithless people. And yet, God was faithful. His power never failed. He never abandoned them. God is faithful to us to remove difficult circumstances from our lives from time to time. He chooses to do that. But God is also faithful to conform us to the image of Christ through suffering and through hardship. Think back in your life to the ways in which God has refined you through trials and difficulties. The life of Jesus in the book of Job testify that God's will for us is that he will often bless us through the experience of suffering and hardship. And God is faithful to remain present with us and to love us through those struggles and to prove his faithfulness to us in the midst of that. 
Second, the false prosperity gospel diminishes the riches of Jesus Christ and replaces him as our treasure with material health and wealth as the ultimate blessings of the Christian life. If you like nice cars and big houses and material blessings and uh, good health more than you like Jesus, then you have deeply misunderstood the beauty of the gospel and the richness of Christ, the treasure that he truly is. The Lord gives and praise God when he does that, but the Lord also takes away and praise God when he does that. Because when he takes away and he leaves us in material poverty or with diminished health, his intention is to give us more of himself, to lift us up. And blessed be the name of the Lord in all circumstances because Christ is our treasure and God will never permit his children to lose him as the treasure of our hearts. And so for the Christian, Jesus himself is all of our treasure, all of our riches, all of our desire, and we need nothing more than him. Third, this false gospel de-emphasizes the authority of Scripture and instead reinvests that authority in the charismatic personalities of a few individuals often called prophets or apostles. And this undermines the teaching of Scripture. It elevates the words and perspectives of a few individuals to the same place or even above the Word of God, and it replaces the authority of God with the potentially very deceptive teachings of people peddling an empty religion that I would say is an imposter and not Christianity. True Christianity claims that the authority of what we believe is found in the Word of God and the Spirit of God dwelling in His people. It's not in teachers who claim status for themselves as prophets or apostles who then place themselves up above the Word of God. And at its core, this false gospel is deeply narcissistic, it's materialistic, it's consumeristic, which just happens to fit perfectly with the culture that we live in, doesn't it? No wonder it sells like hotcakes. And so in short, instead of Jesus being central to the Christian, man himself becomes central. And man is lost when God is not his center. That's the beginning of this whole tragic story back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way and not keep God and his law at the center. Now, the second anti-Christ false gospel being peddled under the guise of Christianity is what's called the social gospel. At its core, I would assert that the social gospel is an unholy union between Marxism, the class struggle of that philosophical idea, and a biblical ethic for justice. And according to this view, the problem plaguing humanity is that the world is full of poor and needy people, marginalized groups and mistreated groups, oppressed and beleaguered individuals, and the social gospel is our responsibility to fix that problem. 
And in short, I would say this false gospel asserts that Jesus came to transform the human experience by making the world a more just place. And Jesus exists as just our example to look at and follow as we go about the work of making the world more just, as we become agents of change. This view says the message of the Bible is that God cares extra and especially for the poor and needy, the marginalized, and he wants the world to be a good place. And we as Christians then must labor to bring about a just society. Now look, there are aspects of truth here, which is why this is a winsome idea. Why so many people have been deceived into believing the message of these antichrists who preach this false gospel. But when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 quotes Isaiah and says this, he claims, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says he fulfilled that scripture, but he wasn't talking primarily physically, literally, or he failed miserably. How many oppressed people did Jesus set free from prison? How many poor people did he enrich? He healed a few blind people, that's true. But he didn't make hordes of poor people wealthy. And he didn't set free loads of captives. No, Jesus was talking spiritually about mankind, about the spiritually poor and blind, about those held captive by sin and oppressed by evil. And so let me speak then to the three primary ways in which the social gospel is not the biblical gospel. First, the social gospel denies personal sin against God and the need for repentance from sin. Man's first and fundamental problem, friends, is not his injustice and crimes against his fellow man. As significant and horrific as that injustice may be, it, it, is, it is a great evil. Don't misunderstand. But man's first and fundamental problem is his crime against a holy God who made him. That's the problem. Before you can repent of your sins against other people, you have to acknowledge that all of your sin against others flows from this first and fundamental sin against God. Your hard-hearted rebellion against him. Our unjust treatment of other people, it's only the natural outpouring of hearts that hate God. And you can't fix the behavior without first fixing the heart. And when you acknowledge that our greatest sin is rebellion against a God who loves us, then you find a reason to be deeply humble before this God. To acknowledge that you've offended Him. And to repent of that great sin. But the social gospel fails to acknowledge that the fundamental problem with people is that they have rebelled against God the Creator, and it instead shifts the fundamental problem to something like economic disparity, the wealth of billionaires, 
racism, social inequality. We could go on and on. Now this takes us to the second problem, which is that the social gospel seeks to transform society, but not the human heart. True Christianity proclaims that humanity is so broken that every effort to change the world will ultimately fail. And human history proves this. Pick a political view, pick a style of government, pick a king or a queen or a governor, eventually things fail. The Bible teaches instead that God must change the human heart from the corruption of spiritual death, which will naturally then result in a changed life, a life that becomes increasingly full of all that's good, justice, mercy, peace, love. But to speak of justice and peace and mercy and love while the human heart remains dead in sin, that's a deeply dishonest message. It's full of utopian promises that will never be delivered. It is impossible to achieve that because as long as human hearts are corrupt, they will produce the fruit of corruption in society. Things like hatred and superiority, envy and pride, strife and immorality. See, I've mentioned this before. The problem with humanity is not out there in society. The problem with humanity is here in the human heart, in my desperately wicked heart. That's the problem. And unless my heart is changed... All I'm going to do is substitute one form of evil for another form of evil in an effort to change the world. And this ties into the third problem, which is that the social gospel treats the symptoms of a broken world, but not the real problem. It neglects the cause. And please understand, we do live in an unjust, unjust world. I am not denying that. The poor are ignored. The marginalized mistreated. The powerful get more powerful. The wealth become wealthier. There are racial inequalities and stunning economic disparities. There is hatred and there is privilege and there's corruption and there's cruelty and there's prejudice and there's partiality. These things exist in the world and they are a great evil. But those who claim to help, often end up just exposed as dishonest and corrupt people themselves who only further injustice. Revolutions that promise a better world eventually fail and they require new revolutions with a new promise for salvation that itself never comes. Tyrants are overthrown and they are replaced by new tyrants. Because all of these injustices are only the symptom of the problem. And even if you could cure all of these injustices, even if you could come up with a form of government or a societal structure that would fix all of these things, humans would still perish in sin and unbelief, which is to say the greatest evil of all would still occur that human souls meant to be in relationship with God would go to hell. And that's a great evil. Social injustice is a deep problem, 
But it is not the ultimate problem. And if you think it is the ultimate problem, you are deceived. And the social gospel offers no solution for our one core great problem, which is that we are separated from God. We are dead in our sins. And I would say then, for this reason, the social gospel is evil. And it's a massive blight on the church because it sends well-meaning people hoping to do good out into the world to solve the problems of the world, even as it sends those very same people to hell in their unbelief, with unchanged hearts. It offers some temporary solutions for the symptoms maybe, but it never addresses the real cause. And as Christians, we can pretty much accept all of the problems that the social gospel has identified. We can acknowledge that they exist and they're bad. But as Christians, we reject the idea that these problems can be solved through social reform. It's not going to happen. The true gospel declares that only through hearts changed by God's forgiving grace can people live lives that are changed, full of compassion and kindness and love, selflessness and sacrifice, honoring God through love of their neighbor and love of their enemy. And so our goal is not merely a better social structure. Our goal as Christians is a redeemed soul, restored and made right with God. And without the true gospel of God's grace, I would say that social change is only a band-aid over a gunshot wound to the face. It may staunch the bleeding, but the end result is still death. Now look, speaking against people or ideologies from the pulpit, it's not my favorite thing. Uh, I want to be known for what I stand for, not primarily what I stand against. And I stand for the beauty, love, grace, and truth of Jesus. But sometimes when we make our way through Scripture, we're forced into these kinds of circumstances where we just have to address some difficult things. And when that happens, I'm not going to back down from it. I want to boldly assert that the church is full of the spirit of Antichrist. The promotion of false gospels that look pretty close and pretty winsome, but ultimately lead people astray. And I want to add, I don't think I would even really care what these ideologies teach if they were merely out there. But these are ideologies that claim to offer the hope of Christianity when in fact they are pitching a lie to people. The prosperity gospel and the social gospel are not the good news of Jesus Christ. They are in fact anti-Christ. And so because you're my sheep and I love you and I care about you, I'm compelled to warn you to watch out, watch out. We must love people who belong to these movements. We must pray for them. We must even be humble enough to consider, is there something that we might learn from them? Or is there a way in which their challenges to us might humble us? to realize we're, following, we're falling short in our obedience to Jesus, but we boldly refuse to affirm and participate in these false gospels. Scripture is very clear 
that we should not associate with movements that claim to be Christian but are opposed to Jesus. Flip over in your Bible with me to 2 John. It should just be a page or two to the right. In my Bible, it's page 1,546, if that helps. Look at 2 John, starting in verse 6. John writes this, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now look at this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The warning here is clear. If these false gospels try to infiltrate your home, do not invite them in. Yes, we must love all people like Jesus loves all people. Because that's the proof that we belong to him. And that our hearts have been changed to be like him. But we must also reject every false gospel and refuse to participate in it. Refuse to participate in the wicked works of those who reject Christ alone. Now back to 1 John. The good news from verse 19 for the beloved children of God is that the truth and the lie will eventually be clear. God in his grace is eventually going to prune the church to reveal those who are truly his sheep who truly belong to him. So we don't need to despair. As God prunes, those who belong to Christ will remain with us and those who belong to Antichrist will go and they will be exposed and they will pursue their idols. And we continue to pray for them, but we remain boldly confident in what we believe according to Scripture. So let me just in closing do this. I think the best thing to do, and forgive me, I'm long, But I don't think we can end without spending a few more moments on just reflecting what the real gospel is. How important is that? Because this gospel of Christ is so much better than the counterfeits. It's so much richer. It's so much more life-giving than these deceptive imposters. And so the gospel begins with an honest acknowledgement that we are sinners. I'm not the only one in the room with a wicked heart. You have one too. You are a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's expectation for you is perfection, and you have failed to achieve it. And our primary problem is right here. It's not that we are racist or rich. It's not that we're privileged or an oppressor. It's not that we have a lack of health or that we're poor. Our primary problem is not that we may be marginalized or that we contribute to injustice. 
Your problem and my problem fundamentally is that we are sinners. And the gospel begins there. You are a rebel against a holy God. And we must acknowledge that our rebellion against him has not only pierced his heart and brought him great grief, but it's also led to ruin in our own lives and in the world that we inhabit. And once we acknowledge that, then we repent. We confess our sin. We say we are sorry. We grieve over the evil that we have done, over the wounds that we have contributed to the heart of God. And we turn from that evil. We accept grace and forgiveness. And we place our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ who died a violent and unjust death to prove the depth of his redeeming love for us. Romans 3.23 goes on to say in the following verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so after our acknowledgement of our sin and our subsequent repentance, we receive the loving grace of God, and we are forever transformed by that grace. And what happens next is the effect of the gospel. See, the gospel is that we are made right with God through grace. The good news is that although you're a sinner, God loves you. He's made a way for you to be reconciled, for the guilt that you feel to be removed, for the shame to be removed. And praise be to God that after you acknowledge that and you are made right with God, there are many wonderful effects that take place in your life as you walk in righteousness. The gospel works itself out in real life in so many beautiful ways. Ways that the world and its counterfeits cannot even begin to touch. You can humbly acknowledge that you have indeed wronged others. Instead of being proud and defensive and in denial, you can live a changed life doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. You can actually care for other people without selfish motives because you understand that you are cared for by God. And you can love this world because you can see in Christ and his blood shed God's love for this broken world. And we can boldly labor for change because we're set free from slavery to sin and the guilt and shame of our sin. And we can follow Jesus, the one who loved both poor and rich people. Jesus, who loved the powerful and the weak. Jesus, who loved the religious and the non-religious. By God's grace, we can see the kingdom of God grow as it captivates hearts and minds. As the Spirit of Christ comes to rule and reign in the lives of people so that they walk in love and joy, patience, compassion, humility, peace, and kindness. Only the gospel of Christ The forgiveness of sins can bring about this kind of change. 
And that, my friends, that's real change in the world that honors God. Let me pray for us. God, just humble us to accept that the gospel is true and there is one gospel, there is one way to God. It is through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And let us remember that that journey begins by acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And it moves through repentance where we turn from evil and sin. And we desire Christ, the true treasure of our hearts. And we pursue Him. And His life comes to be lived in us, manifest in us through the fruit of the Spirit. So that we become true change agents as our hearts are changed to be like Christ. Lord, humble us before you. Help us to walk in truth, to know the difference between the truth and a lie, the gospel of Christ and counterfeits that claim his name. And Lord, make us people who love deeply like you deeply love this broken world. Change us for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.